Welcome to Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts taking an unreasonably deep dive into this week's health news. This week's words are Facebook, mental health, notes, and movement. All right. And, and this this week on, face, on, on Bad Patient, we're going to look at how we might be oversharing our health news on Facebook, how mental health crisis is happening in America, why getting access to your doctor's notes is important, and the new movement of movement that is sweeping the world. The new How's that? That's excellent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm extremely jet lagged today, so no matter what you said, I was going to say that was excellent. Thank you. But when I think about <laughs> it, that really was excellent. And I feel I feel like I'm in a, a little bit of a like I had a I lay down for a while and I had a little snack and so I feel like I'm feeling 10% more sane than I was a couple hours ago but for mm-hmm. the for the record I woke up 15 hours ago in Kentucky and now I'm in Oregon and that was today. So um grain grain of salt on today's analysis folks. Okay, so she's going to be great Fantastic. nailing this shit. Yes. So our first article comes from Lifehackers, and it's how your Facebook posts might reveal your mental status. Medical status, not mental. Um, So uh, researchers um, have published a new study in which they correctly guess the people's medical conditions by analyzing their Facebook posts. Um, They got consent from the people that they were doing research and the results are private. But the thing about this is we might be telling people more about our medical conditions than we realize based on our Facebook post. So in a study that um, researchers at asked people at a clinic, mostly Afri- African-American women, if they could analyze their social media post and compare them to their medical records. And then they used an algorithm to look at words used in the post and notice words or combination of words that most likely would be associated with certain medical conditions. They trained the algorithm to look at that, and they were able to guess a lot of people's conditions. So some conditions like depressions, Facebook posts weren't any better at predicting the condition than just looking at a poster's demographics, for instance, their information like Although, age, sex, and race. But I others, think the connection between like your friends finding out about your health problems is not what the study was finding. Analyze right, like it. they found so, a connection between religious Facebook language was not and diabetes. In, with so that doesn't study, mean that like um, your aunt Tia is going to figure out that you're diabetic because kind of you're talking about God. That, that means that like a computer so, algorithm can predict what medical condition you have based on your word choice. But their conclusion is maybe you should be careful what you're sharing online because like you're, well, I I guess it, I don't know. I thought there was a line in this thing that made it sound like you're sharing it with friends or something, but Facebook is creepy in so many ways. It's not just health, but I, (laughs) I really want there to be a whole story about the use of God language and diabetes. Like, that's that that's predict like how what does that even mean i also like that they they like 
They said topics expressing hostility like dumb, bullshit, and bitches, pardon my language, were the predominant marker of drug abuse and psychosis. Um, right? <laughs> but then, and, they, and then they went on to talk about depression, but I, the study found that they couldn't predict depression, so I don't even know why we want their comments on it. That's really weird. Um, God. I just want to get off of Facebook, but all my swim stuff is on there. And I, and I, and then like, seriously, every swim I do is organized on Facebook and I don't want to like lose that, but. Right. First it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. But the weird thing is it's like this pie piece of my, of my friends, right? Like the majority of my friends aren't on it anymore. But it's this little pie slice, like this one community that I care deeply about that's deeply involved with it. And I feel yep, like that's how they get I you. can't disconnect. That social network Ugh. is, in fact, important. And maybe to you. that's an excuse because <laughs> part of me doesn't want to. I'm sure there's like a deeper mental reason. Speaking of mental health, Laura, what's our next story? So, our next story comes from Bloomberg, and its latest suicide data shows the depth of the U.S. mental health crisis. So this is looking at while life in the United States is getting better, like unemployment is the lowest that it's been since 1969. Violent crime has fallen sharply since the 1990s. Cities like New York City have never been safer. Americans are living longer than in 20, on average, nine years longer than they in 2017 than they did in 1960s. Um, And that would make you think that with all those markers that everything in our lives is better. But in 2017, 47,000 people died of suicide and 1.4, there were 1.4 million Mm. suicide attempts. So it's accelerating. Um, So suicide rate is the highest since level since world war two. Um, and the suicide rate has increased about 1% a year from 2000 to 2006 and 2% a year between 2006 and 2016. So it's accelerating. And then that doesn't even necessarily take into account like drug overdoses. Um, And then uh, 17.3 million or 7% of U.S. adults reported suffering at least one major depressive episode in the past year. Um. Life expectancies um, has fallen, as we've noted before, on bad patient. It's the third straight year, and that hasn't been seen since um, three-year drop since 1915 Yeah, we've, like, stigmatized it. So it's looking at a variety of reasons that are causing it um, with the mental health epidemic. Mm. Um it's on right. the scale of the global financial crisis, but we lack institutions, policies, and determination to address it. So instead, we're, yep, and instead, our largest right. and then the scary thing that's mentioned here is that the prisons. use of antidepressants um, in nations like Australia, Canada, England, and here so in the U.S. did not lead to a decline so, despite in all of our advances and, and how much better our lives are. Despite um, what the article calls a substantial again, increase in the use of don't medications happiness to between the 1990 and 2015. So that also just means like the drugs aren't the, like we don't 
it's getting worse and the things that we've developed to combat it are not working. I think it's one more symptom of, yeah. You know how we always say you have to eat, that every study says you have to eat healthy, you have to exercise and more research is needed. I feel like we we need to like think of something succinct about mental health because we keep finding this, that it's almost like we, it's like, yeah, it's like they're death not care as effective like as end thought. of life care. We all yeah. know it's coming, but we really don't want to talk about it. Mental health, I think we're increasingly willing to talk about it, but it's still not destigmatized, right? Like you can freely talk about having diabetes, but most people don't freely talk about having schizophrenia or something, which is ridiculous, but also just like the way that things are. So, and then, and then that just perpetuates like mental illness and people in prisons and like all these things that are vicious cycles. Suicide though. Right. I mean, it's such a separate thing in some ways, right? Because there's like mental illness and then there's killing right. yourself. Like, I'm not saying there's mm-hmm. no link, but it's pretty shocking. Exactly. And it's pretty shocking that we don't think it's that much of a problem. I mean, we've really taken on um, drug overdose, right? Like that has become a national cause. And yet I don't feel like mental illness has become a national cause, but what what's the greater risk of death? So Right. So Wow. All right. I'm depressed. What's our next story? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Don't want it. Right. (laughs) So our next story comes from NBC News, and it's why it's important for patients to look at their doctor's notes. So, um, (laughs) so this is um, talking about people have access to their doctor notes due to HIPAA. But it's not always easy or practical for people to get those notes. And being able to see the notes can kind of um, help people understand what the doctor was talking about. And also, uh, for some people, gives the idea of understanding and that like seeing quotes from themselves shows that the doctors were truly listening. It just provides a more holistic um, idea. So the antidote that, um, antidotal evidence is... Um, this person didn't really click her epiphany. Her um, catalyst was when she saw clinically morbidly obese. Um, she she knew she was overweight, but it, seeing those words together really shocked her and inspired her to lose weight. So having access to them was important. So uh, one study, when researchers surveyed per- patients who looked at their doctor's notes, the majority reported that they felt more in control of their care and said they were more compliant with taking medication. A small share from 1% to 8% said the notes caused confusion, worry, or offense. <laughs> Where would you be? <laughs> I think I might be in that 1% to 8%. Well, I, okay, so I have, I have a wonky jaw situation, mm-hmm. which falls somewhere between like medical doctors and dentists. And so it can be, it's best cared for by no one, right? Like 
there's there is no there's nothing you know it's not like there's a if you break your bone there's like an orthopedic specialist there's no set person and so most medical professionals then assume that someone else is taking care of it and have an incomplete at best understanding of the condition as a whole I'm going to tell you that wonky jaw is not the technical term, but that I don't think I've ever had two doctors use the same term. And it's just been kind of, it's been difficult, you know, when you feel like right. they, they don't even understand mm-hmm. like how this works or what type of care or even like what specialist to refer you to. You know, I had a, a recent doctor who told me like, if my jaw ever acted up, he could send me to an ENT. And he told me that like a couple times over a year long period. And I never said anything, not, you know, there's limited time and not wanting to cause offense. But yeah, that was a difficult moment. So I might be in the major- minority, but I don't know that I'd want to see all the things that people have like misconstrued me as. But I do agree that for the average person, because I mean, this is just like, it's wonky. It's weird. But for the average person, it might really help them to know, like, is their cholesterol, you know, how high is it? Or what, like, oh, did they actually diagnose you with something? I I think sometimes what they say to your face might be the kinder, gentler version. And then what they write down is like, this is the illness that you have. And so yeah, maybe maybe seeing that. Um, I also think you know eating right and exercising could be helpful in these. Ki- I'm kidding. So, I also have noticed though that in the switch to EMRs, electronic medical records, a lot of times the notes are not included. I've I've never actually seen them include. Uh, there was one one person I saw it for once, but then the notes actually were wrong. So I think they might have been someone else's or God knows. It was like this conversation never happened, but that's interesting. Um, But my sense is that I think that in some of these systems, the physicians can make private notes or something, or maybe they're not making notes at all. But what you see at the end is just like a list of your vital signs, whatever they diagnose you as having, you know, ongoing, whatever. And then their their little recommendation that you're supposed to come back in a year or not or get an x-ray or not or you know, whatever so um i wonder how medical providers feel about this because also in a way don't they kind of need a place where they can like jot down i think this person might be lying to me <laughs> like don't they have to keep track of that somehow wow i feel like i just made an argument i thought i would never make I don't know. What do you think? Do we need full access? I don't know. They they, they interview um, some physicians, um, and they said, the doctor said having her notes on display wouldn't change her behavior or note-taking much. Um, and, and she said, quote, I think it's actually good for us as a profession to be more mindful of the words that we use. So it doesn't appear that there are secret notes. No, I mean, you could, you could always have a, you always had a legal right to the notes from any medical appointment, but I know different, different Mm -hmm. specialties have talked about 
like you say, especially the mental health folks have like, what if, how would someone feel if they saw my notes? Like, what does that mean? Because up until recently, not that many people were ever requesting them. So, Mm -hmm. all right. What's our last story? Our last story comes from Quartzy and it's, you do not need more exercise. You just need to move. So this is kind of building off of last uh, week's episode. So it's looking at um, the fact that we have never been a more sedentary people than we are right now, and that it's killing us. Uh, uh, sedentary jobs in the United States has increased 83% since the 1950s, and physical activity jobs make up less than 20% of the workforce. Um, so even though we need movement, um, U.S. physical activity guidelines calls for 150 minutes per, per week for adults or 30 minutes five days a week. Um but even if you're doing a workout for 30 minutes a day, that means that 98% of your time you are not moving. Mm. So there's a new movement of movement, which is uh, trying to frame fitness not as much as how much you exercise, but how much we move. Um, so it's not necessarily choosing high intensity or uh, fitness routines, but looking to have more movement throughout the day. So, um, and building that into it. So, um, so instead of just doing 30 minutes of high intensity, having a long, slower walk for two to three hours is much better for you than necessarily 30 minutes of, um, like high intensity, you know, high intense cardio or whatever. Hmm. So, so yeah, trying to create a movement of movement. No, I get that. Why, why are all the topics this week so dark? All right. So um, you got to eat right and exercise. We'd like you to also keep track of your mental health. Don't get lonely. I don't know where this all goes. I wonder if Generation Z <laughs> is going to have a backlash against screens. And because I think that's where that's the first generation that grew up terrified of environmental destruction via climate change. So we saw Fern Gully in the 80s and and learned that supposedly big corporations were evil or whatever, right? Like, don't destroy the rainforest. But we learned that the environment was far away. And I think kids now are are localizing a lot of this stuff, especially when there's Mm -hmm. a school shooting at their school. And they're starting to think about, they're starting Mm -hmm. to think about weather weirdness as something that happens in their community it's not just a tsunami that strikes japan right it's a tornado in dayton ohio now so i wonder if right because when i think about this i think it's hopeless we can't even get people to eat produce or you know like we we can't we can't even stabilize obesity no matter how much technology we come up with no matter how much money our economy is or like you know our corporations are or are not producing it does nothing seems to be helping so i'm leaving this one to the children what's your solution (laughs) i don't know if leaving it to the children is the only solution um i think we can do all do more eat eat healthy (laughs) but we don't and do movement but we don't do it I'm trying, man. Okay, you're trying. Get off my back. But on the whole, you do, I do it. it. But you know what? I'm not as 
I, you don't know me. <laughs> I specifically do know you. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but I don't, I don't get 10,000 steps That's a day. That's the point of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, paradoxically, my environment helping work from home behaviors are tanking my, like during the day activity levels, as is the small footprint of my residence, right? So I live in a small condo. And I know you, you like to make fun of me because I always tell you that it's small, but it's small, Laura. It's small. It does have room for guests. Okay. I can host, I can host, I would say, depending on, you know, like I could probably max out at like four other people, but two other people comfortably plus me. Why, why are my t- people don't care? Oh mm-hmm. my God. Sometimes I hear myself talk. Okay. <laughs> so the point being, some of the things that we do that are good for the environment, like living in a smaller space, working from home are not necessarily good for your body, right? Because maybe I don't move around as much. Mm-hmm. Although I think they've they've heat mapped people in larger homes and found that like they only use 30% of their space anyway. So I don't know. Mm. But I think we do still need to keep telling people that just because you go for a run in the morning does not mean that 23 hours of sedentary behavior is fine. Because that was shocking to me. I kind of thought, oh, well, I'm fine. But mm-hmm. no. My watch tries to estimate how much, how many steps I'm going to get. And it tries to give me goals. And it's really sad. The goal right now, I think, is like 6,000 steps a day. It's like, come on, you can do it. And I, I just, I don't know. I'm trying so hard to do so many things. And... I have to admit that that's not on the priority list today. But then, okay, I want to also say that it doesn't give me any points for bike commuting, which is kind of frustrating because I do do that. Because it doesn't, Mm. um, it only tracks like your arm has to be moving. So if you're riding a bike, it thinks that you're sitting still. So Mm. I feel like I get a little bit for that. But I don't know. Still not good. So how's your weightlifting going, Laura? I mean, I've done it five of the last six days. Okay. See, I think that's sweet. And you really don't need that much. Backstory world, Laura is lifting weights. And I'm much more excited about it than she is. So what, you've got some hand weights and you're doing stuff? Mm Mm-hmm. Well. Yep trying to i like it yeah uh someone in my instagram who is a physical therapy student said twice a week was like the minimum and she suggested sets of eight to 12 repetitions however um for me i've had people tell me that if i'm gonna work out six days a week swimming biking and running that strength training isn't critical unless i'm having a specific problem but it is ideal and actually, I have found I've, I'm doing it once a week now. Once a week as like an hour of intense stuff. Intense meaning someone else is watching me and telling me what to do. And that has been good. Um, I definitely could do more. That's great. But I don't know. I don't know. Life is busy, Laura. It's always busy. You're always going to be busy. No. Today's my last... Today is my last day of busyness, and then tomorrow I'm quitting everything. Okay, good. I'm glad we got that. We got that. <laughs> we got that set up. So, 
Thanks for listening. Until next time, we are Bad Patients.